Chapter 8, Breaking Point I've decided to change your name, Glaucus said on the day after the wedding, lounging at ease on his sleeping couch, while Beric stood before him. From now on, you will be called Hyacinthus. So even his name was to be taken from him, the one thing he had left, and the thing that made him himself and nobody else. He had a sudden feeling of panic, as though the last fragile thread that still linked him to the life he knew was being snapped by the slender, ruthless hands of his new master. My name is Beric, he said stubbornly. Beric is not a name, it is a mere sound. Good enough, doubtless, for the savages who called you by it, but not good enough for me, Glaucus said, almost idly as though it were a fact so obvious as to be scarcely worth mentioning. From now on, your name is Hyacinthus. You understand? I understand. Oh, and another thing, while I remember it, I will not have you hanging around the stables. Now that my father has bought a decent slave in place of that old, daughtered Hippias, they have no need for your help with the horses. You are not to go into the stables at all, unless by my orders to bring round the chariot. The care of the team is no longer any concern of yours. It is always better that a team should know who the man, the man who drives it, Beric said urgently. Doubtless, that is the barbarian way, but it is not mine. You have your orders, and if you forget them, I will have you whipped to help you remember another time. Now get out. Beric turned on his heel without a word, and also without the usual obeisance. It was a very futile gesture of defiance. He realized that, even as he made it. And almost in the same instant, there was a quick movement behind him as Glaucus sprang from the couch, and he was caught by the shoulders and spun round to face his master. Have you not forgotten something? Glaucus said softly, his fingers biting into Beric's shoulder. Beric remained silent. You should not leave my presence without saluting, because you are a slave, and I am your master. Because you belong to me, as my sandals belong to me. That is another thing for you to remember. Beric stood there tense and rigid under the gripping hands. If he had been a dog, the hackles would have risen on his neck, and something of that must have shown in his face, for Glaucus said quickly, do not you dare show your teeth to me, you barbarian wolf's whelp, and withdrawing one hand struck him a sharp, deliberate blow across the cheek. Now go, Hyacinthus. For an instant longer, Beric stood perfectly still, with the deepening marks of four fingers burning in his cheek. Then he made his obeisance, and almost choking, turned and strode out. He was Hyacinthus, Glaucus a slave, and without hope. The months that followed were evil ones for Beric, a black time of injustice and casual-seeming cruelties and humiliations that made him writhe. Friendless in the great household, forbidden even the company of horses, without any hope for the future, he got somehow through day after dreary day. Occasionally, Lucia came to visit her mother, but he seldom caught more than a distant glimpse of her. Glaucus saw to that. Publius Piso said he had been right after all, that slave was sullen. A good worker, doubtless, a fine charioteer, but sullen. He was never mistaken. So things dragged on until the evening when Publius Piso gave a dinner party to celebrate his election as one of the city's four adels for the coming year. It was a big dinner party, and Beric had been brought in to swell the number of table slaves, as had happened more than once before. Earlier that evening, he had paraded with the rest of Nigellus's inspection, 
all in new tunics issued for the occasion, and now, with the first course of eggs and anchovies and sharp-tasting herbs already on the table, he stood against the frescoed wall and looked at him. The whole scene seemed to swim in honey-colored light that fell from the high silver wall lamps and fountained upwards from those on the polished citron wood table. Cedar logs were burning on the charcoal and the braziers, the scent of them mingling like incense with that of the flowers on the table. Winter cyclamen and emonies and aromatic sprigs of rosemary scattered among the gleaming dishes and banked around silver figures of the household gods. The guests reclining on the softly cushioned dining couches were each wearing a flower wreath too, in which, if the laughter had not been quenched in him long ago, Peric would have thought that most of them looked distinctly comic. His gaze wandered over the faces of the guests, all turned towards their host as he poured the first oblation to the household gods. They were all men, even the Lady Papea had been banished to dine in her own chamber, mostly fellow magistrates of the Publius Pisos. Valerius had been there, of course, but he had had to go south on business. Glaucus, the only young one there, and the only one whose wreath somehow did not look ridiculous, was behaving beautifully in his part of a boy among his elders, turning from one to another with just the right touch of deference that made them feel senior without making them feel old. How well he did it, Beric thought, watching him from his place against the wall, with the quiet, long-biting hatred of his foster people. But tonight, Beric's chief attention, which until now had been focused upon his master in whatever company they might be, as though by the very strength of the hatred between them, was gradually caught and held by someone else. By a man, with the distinctive carriage of the regular soldier, placed directly across the table from the son of the house, and deep in quiet talk with an elderly senator beside him. This, Beric knew, for he had seen the man before, though never at close quarters, was Titus Drusus Justinius, a senior centurion of the legions and a noted builder of roads and drainer of marshes to the outermost ends of the empire. But it was something about the man himself, and not his reputation, that caught at the awareness of the slave against the wall, and indeed he was a figure to stand out in any company, a squat, barrel-chested man with immensely powerful shoulders and arms whose length made him appear grotesque when one saw him standing. His dark, lean-cut face with the great hooked nose and the black brows that almost met below the brand of Mithras on his forehead might well have been a desert Arab's, but when he raised his eyes from the wine cup in his hand, instead of being as one expected them to be black with the sun behind them, they were cold, quiet gray of northern seas, the eyes of a man who might be merciless at times but never be unjust. It would be good to serve a man like that. If I were his slave, Beric thought, if only I were his slave. He found that the sharp hunger-making first course was over, and it was time to carry around the bowls of scented water and soft linen towels for the guests to wash their fingers. The next course was brought in, giant turbot on dishes as broad as bucklers, kid boiled in milk with sweet herbs, roast flamingo coming to the table and all their white and scarlet plumage. Crito, the head table slave, carved before his master, and for a while Beric and his fellows kept busy carrying plates and dishes and keeping the wine cups filled with red Falerian or gold Greek wine. By the time the second course also was done with, the mood of the company, which had been somewhat reserved at first, Publius Piso's dinner parties were apt to have a faint frost on them, had warmed into cheerfulness. 
There was a general air of ungirding. Voices grew louder and eyes brighter. Men began to laugh with each other, and their banquet wreaths slipped a little sideways. To our new Adel, somebody called out, holding up a freshly charged wine cup. Success to him, and may he have cause to give other celebration dinners, as good as this one, to his admiring friends. All around the table, cups were raised. To the new Adel, echoed from all sides, and Publius Piso was in his element as he bowed and beamed his acknowledgement, swelling and blossoming in the warmth of their friendly laughter. The main business of dinner was over now, and Barrack and his fellows had removed the empty chargers and set in their place dishes of little sweet cakes in silver baskets filled with honeyed apricots and green and purple bran-stored grapes. And Barrack, standing watchful in his place, heard the laughter and the cheerful rallery rising all around him. Four years from now, a little merry man cocked an eye like a blackbird's toward his host. That will be the day, eh, Publius? Publius Piso for consul, someone joined in from the foot of the table. Vote for Piso, more games and fewer taxes, chanted a third, and there was a general laughter. I'll vote for you if you'll ask me to dinner again and give me some more of this vintage, promised the man with an eye like a blackbird. Publius Piso looked down his nose, pleased, but at the same time, slightly disapproving of so much levity on a serious subject. If... When the time comes, my fellow citizens should do me the supreme honor to elect me to the councilship, he said. I trust, my friends, that you will each and every one of you give me the happiness, the very great happiness, of seeing you at my poor table on the third evening after my election. Accepted, accepted, cried the guests, and a man with a wreath of white cyclamen slipping over a bottle nose avowed with profound dignity, Speaking as I trust I may for the whole of this assembled company, though come to think of it, I can't see why I should, I say that the failing there, in short, the shears of Atropos, we will each and every one of us be here upon that er, auspicious occasion, each and every one of us, after you with the almond kicks, Clodius. Not quite every one of us, said the senator quietly. There will, I think, be one member of our gathering here tonight who will be otherwise engaged and at rather too great a distance from Rome. And he glanced at the centurion behind him, or beside him. Other eyes were turned in the same direction. Percol, I thought you were done with the outposts of the empire, and a bird said a bird-eyed man. Did you, said the centurion tranquilly, speaking almost for the first time to the company in general. Where is it to be this time? Still Britain, said the centurion. Still my same marsh and my old job. The quietly spoken words seemed to leap out at Beric as a shout, and his gaze, which had been on his master, whipped back to the centurion with a startled intensity. When do you return? someone asked. I sail from Ostia on the third day from now. A buzz of interest had broken out around the table. I had not realized that you were going north again said a man at the foot of the table, reaching for a honeyed apricot. Surely you are due for promotion. I am. They looked at him, puzzled, and Glaucus burst out. But sir, do you mean that you're going to let that slip for the sake of a few yokelins of marsh? He checked with a show of half-laughing dismay. Oh, forgive me, sir. I, I had no business to say that. Centurion Justinius made a small gesture, as though dismissing the apology. I mean precisely that, he said. 
I have very few leanings toward the work of a camp commandant, even fewer towards the Praetorian Guard, and life one long ceremonial parade. I have the gravest doubts of my abilities as a prefect, but I am thoroughly a good engineer. He glanced around the table, and his voice lost the faintly mocking note that had been until now. I've had the draining of this marsh from the outset, from the first survey four years ago. It is the last marsh that I shall reclaim, and I had leaf see the thing completed, before my time comes to take my wooden foil and bid goodbye to the eagles. I believe your marshes and your roads are more to you than flesh and blood, said Publius Piso, almost fretfully. Wife and son at the very least, said the bird-eyed man with a laugh. A marsh for a wife and a straight paved road for a son. Your born engineer needs no other. The centurion was gently swirling the wine in his cup and watching the swing of it. There was an odd half-smile on his mouth, but he said nothing. Then we shall be no seeing no more of you until this marsh of yours is finally safe from the sea. Someone broke the small silence. Justinius set down his wine cup with delicate precision and raised those bleak gray eyes of his. I very much doubt, my dear Fulvius, if you will see anything more of me even then. I have a feeling that I shall strike my roots in the north. My mother was part British after all. They stared at him blankly. Zeus, said his host, and then added hastily, well, well, Durinum is a pleasant place to retire, so I've heard, or Aquisulis. The centurion shook his head. Very pleasant, I believe, but not for me. When first I went out, I took over a derelict farmstead on the high fringe of the marsh and put in an old optio of mine and his wife to look after it. At the outset, I only meant to use it for winter quarters while the job lasted, but I've grown to feel the place my home. Servius has already wrought wonders, and presently, when we have finished clearing the scrub and brought the land back into good heart, we shall have a run a few horses on it. That's a good way to retire. Better than drinking the waters at Aquaeus Sulis. You're not afraid that the time may come when you will feel the pull of civilization, said the senator gently. No, I've enjoyed my leave in Rome, but I've lived over long in the wilds to settle into the life of the cities. Civilization is too tight a fit for me now, so that I find it hard to breathe. His harsh, fate, harsh face softened a little. I want my wide marsh skies, my small outland farm, and the wild geese flighting down from the north with the autumn gales. His words struck home to the young slave standing against the wall. I also, my own skies, my own hills, he could have cried it out. For a moment, the crowded lamplit room was lost reality, and he was a thousand miles and two long years away and free. Only for a moment, and then the room clamped down on him again, and he became aware that Glaucus, now very flushed and bright of eye, had just set down his wine cup, empty, and was crooking an impatient finger for a slave to refill it. Automaton, who had also been pressed into service, was pouring for someone else at the moment, and Beric was nearest to his master. He stepped forward and bent to fill the cup with which the other held from the slender jug of Falernian in his hand. He had been trained to pour from a distance so that the wine fell curving into a slender stream into the cup below. But as he tipped the jug, a slight abrupt movement caught at the tail of his eye and he glanced, flicked up for an instant to meet the eyes of the centurion fixed on his face with a startled intensity, an eager searching look that was almost painful. 
For the merest breath of their time, of time, their gaze met so strongly that it was like an actual touch before Barracks flicked down again to the wine cup in his master's hand, but the mischief was done. His hand, checking at the wrong instant, had broken the perfect arc of the fallen wine so that it spattered a few drops, bright as blood, onto Glaucus's wrist and up across the jewel-clasped sleeve of his tunic. Glaucus broke off midway in some remark to his neighbor with a sharp exclamation of annoyance, glanced up to see who the clumsy slave might be, and seeing, struck him full in the face. It was not a particularly hard blow, and certainly it was not the first that his slave had had from him, but the heavy signet ring which he wore cut Barrack's mouth, and at the taste of blood between his teeth, salt and sweet together, something hard-held control snapped in him. Perhaps it was because of that moment, scarcely passed, when his freedom in his own world had returned to him so vividly. Suddenly, he could bear no more. He was not conscious of shifting his grip on the wine jug and dashing the whole contents onto the handsome, hated face before him. He did not realize that he had done it until he saw Glaucus gasping with the red Falernian trickling off his chin and the crimson stain of it spreading over the, his breast and shoulders. The sudden hush became a bubble of utter stillness, swelling and swelling until it burst. An uproar rushed in from all sides as Publius Piso let out a bellow of fury, and the outraged guests shot up on their couches, and Barrack's fellow slaves flung themselves upon him as a dog suddenly gone wild. Within a few moments, it was all over, and he had been dragged back and was standing helpless in the grip of many hands, his arms twisted behind him. The uproar ended as swiftly as it had begun. Only Publius Piso, Damson colored with fury, his wreath of violets slipping wildly over one eye, was sputtering out barely intelligible exclamations, orders to his slaves, and apologies that seemed to be as much for his son's disgraceful behavior as anything else to his guests. Glaucus shook himself clear of the slaves who had sprung up to mop him down and turned to look at Beric, where he stood panting in the grip of his captors. Once again, his eyes narrowed like those of a cat before it spits. You must be mad, he said very softly. That is the kindest thing to think about you. There's only one place for a mad slave, and that is the salt mines. We must arrange for you to go there, Hyacinthus. Distaste showed on the faces of the guests. One or two of them shrugged and glanced at each other with raised brows, but only one cut across the laws of custom and good manners to speak out in defense of the wretched slave, and that was Justinius, who had grown unused to the ways of civilization. Don't be a fool, Glaucus. It was my doing that he spilled the wine in the first place, for I moved quickly and the movement caught his eye. There was no just cause for a blow, and if you were in the habit of striking without cause, you should not be surprised if the blows rebound. And must we all freeze like so many deer who scent danger every time a slave pours wine, lest we distract his attention? Glaucus flung back at his father's guests, and then, belatedly recovering his manners, added more quietly. I beg your forgiveness, sir, but I know this particular slave and his deserts. His narrowed, glittering gaze lingered on Beric's face, moved to the slaves who held him, and back again. Thirty strokes, I think, for a mad dog. That can wait until the morning, however. It will be something for him to look forward to through the night. Take him away and chain him up, lest he bite somebody. 